there's going to be a lot of change coming in the next you know 18 months that uh, you need to be able to be prepared for because I think change management is going to be one of the biggest challenges coming up and and being you know having a working knowledge and literacy of, of what's going on in the AI world is going to be critical as humans how can we create new value and that requires an entirely new set of skills than what most of us have been working with this and more in this new episode of the ISEF podcast, the leading global podcast series for international student recruitment professionals in all corners of the world. Be sure to subscribe via your favourite podcast player and join us for a new episode available every month. This month's main topic is Move Over AI, Here Comes AGI, the impact of artificial general intelligence on international education. Welcome back, everyone, to the ISAF podcast, this time with a focus on the next stage in the AI evolution, artificial general intelligence, our main topic this month. We'll start, however, in our first segment, news and developments, with an important update and overview of the situation in Canada following the very recent announcement of a cap on study permits for international students. And as always, in our third and final segment, Keys to the Market, we'll discuss a specific country from a student recruitment perspective. And this time that country is the Czech Republic or Czechia. Coming up, the main topic of discussion for this episode. But first, as in each month, we kick off with a look at some recent news and developments in international education. I'm your host, Martijn van der Veen, and joining me as in each month is ISAF Monitor's Editor-in-Chief, Craig Riggs. Uh, welcome back, Craig. And where were you when you heard the news about the student cap in your home country? I was, appropriately enough, I was sitting at my desk working away on uh, something for ISAF Monitor. And needless to say, when the news arrived uh, that day, we stopped everything else that we were doing and focused on the rather sweeping announcements from the Canadian Immigration Ministry. Right, I can totally understand that. Well, okay, usually major decisions like this one typically lead to a lot of speculation, confusion and uncertainty. So I guess it's fair to dedicate the entire news and development section this time to Canada's new visa rules. So I know you've been diving deep into this topic. You've written a lot about it already. So can you just walk us through what exactly has been announced by Canada's Minister of Immigration, Mark Miller? And you're quite right. We've been really quite focused on this over the last couple of weeks, uh, in part because it is in itself a massive development in the industry uh, with ramifications that extend well beyond uh, Canada. And in part because the announcement and the measures that were announced uh, w w really took everybody by surprise, right? We were certainly expecting some movement on the part of the Canadian government, but the nature of the changes that have been announced and the speed at which they're being brought forward is really quite shocking. And so, I, I, in fact, I think if we just step back and look at the situation objectively, I mean, I was on a, a webinar on this topic earlier in the week, and I, and I said at the time, and I, I still feel that this, I think, especially with the benefit of a little bit of time, we're going to look at this as a significant overcorrection on the part of the Canadian government. Uh, they have brought these measures forward very quickly and quite clearly without significant consultation uh, with, you know, major sector groups in, in Canada or even with provincial and territorial governments across the country that are going to play an important role in implementing these new regulations. So it's a uh, it's quite breathtaking to see this change of this uh, scale announced as quickly as this has been. But in a nutshell, what's been announced is a cap on international study permits that will be uh, issued in 2024 and 2025. 
this will have the effect overall of uh, holding student numbers stable, that is preventing further growth, or uh, even reducing those numbers somewhat uh, over those two years. Other significant measures that were introduced uh, are that uh, students enrolled in programs that are delivered through public-private partnerships, that is to say they're studying at private colleges that are partnered with public colleges, those students as of September 1st this year will no longer be eligible for post-study uh, work opportunities in Canada. And so that is a, uh, needless to say, a very significant and material change for those operators and for those students. So the uh, that uh, th those are the two headline items. The third one, which is kind of the sneaky headline item in the mix, is that there is now an additional administrative requirement uh, attached to study permit applications for students that are applying for uh, a Canadian study visa or study permit, as they're called here, which is that they require a, a supporting letter from the province or territory in which they're attending to study. And this is, it's called an attestation letter. Uh, it's, it's simply a way of having the province indicate that there is space within the cap available to them for the student to come and study. And essentially what's happened is that the immigration ministry has suspended the processing of study permit applications until such time as the provincial attestation process is in place. So I realize that's a lot to grapple with, but it's a, uh, those are the kind of three major pillars of the announcement from last week. Right. So these three pillars are a cap on the number of international students in Canada coming mm -hmm. into Canada. The second is that the Students studying at public-private colleges are no longer eligible for post-study working work opportunities, and the mm -hmm. third one is this uh, supporting data that's required for the, by the from the province for the Canadian study permit. Let's start with that first one: the cap on the number of incoming international students. What numbers are we talking about? So, what the immigration ministry is saying is that, and I mean, if you look at the statistics that are available to us for 2023, what they're saying is that they are reducing the number, they're putting a cap on the number of study permits that will be issued in 2024 and 2025. There has never been a cap in place, but last year there was something on the order of 580,000 uh, study permits issued. The cap this year will be uh, 360,000, right? The ministry is quick to point out that that amounts to something like a 35, 36% reduction, right? Year over year. However, the cap does not apply universally. There are some students, uh, types of students that are exempt from the cap, and those include K-12 students and students that are enrolled in master's or doctoral programs. And so when we factor those out, the actual reduction is nothing like 35%. It's, it's more like 17%, according to my sort of matchbook math. So, the, so that's the sort of initial indicator that we have from the federal government in terms of the level of reduction that should be anticipated here. All right. So just to be clear on this, right, you, there are the newcomer students each year, and then there's, of course, also the total number of international students in Canada. For example, mm -hmm. mentioned in 22, Canada welcomed this record-breaking, was it, 550,000 international students. 
and it brought the total international students uh, in the country, so the the ones that are already there, and the mm -hmm. newcomers to about a million or more than a million. And this cap that, that's is, is not to reduce that million number, right, to 350 or 360, but it's about the newcomers. I just I saw some posts on, on LinkedIn where yep. the, that wrong comparison was made. It's about the newcomers, not the number of international students in the country. That's exactly correct. So this does not, the cap does not intrude on any continuing students that are already in Canada and nor does it nor does it affect any student who already had a study permit application that was in process at the time that this uh, announcement was made on January 22nd. If you had filed your study permit application on January 21st or any point earlier, it remains in process and you can expect to come and study in Canada as you would have otherwise. And the same is true for any continuing students, as you say. What this pertains to is the number of new students yeah. that will be uh, issued a study permit during these next two years. And work permits are also limited uh, or no longer available to spouses of international students. That was also included, I believe, in the... Uh, correct. There are two important changes in terms of work eligibility for international students. What they're saying is that, uh, and this is not actually firmed up yet. This is a, we're expecting a further announcement on this shortly, but the uh, immigration ministry is signaling quite clearly their intention that spouses of students enrolled in master's and doctoral programs as well as those enrolled in professional programs such as medicine or law, those spouses will continue to be eligible for work permits in Canada. However, accompanying spouses of students enrolled in other levels of study, including undergraduate and college programs, will no longer be eligible for work permits. So we don't have any other detail on this at the moment, but they're clearly signaling an intent to put additional restrictions around work permits for accompanying spouses. And as we discussed earlier, the other significant aspect is the imminent removal of post-study work rights for students that are enrolled in programs delivered via public-private partnerships. That model is especially prevalent in the province of Ontario, uh, where international enrollment in such programs has, has uh, really skyrocketed over the last few years. And uh, it's clearly a point, an area of concern for immigration officials. So drastic measures in Canada, and that on top of another recent measure, which was the increase of the funds required to live and study in Canada, on, on top of the tuition fee that used to be, I believe, something like 10,000 Canadian dollars. And since the 1st of January this year, that has doubled to $20,000. You know, so much is happening. What, what else can we expect? I think, I mean, we can expect a lot more detail to come on these changes. I think we can expect further uh, changes in policy settings as well. Uh, the federal government is clearly in an a interventionist mood uh, with respect to the international education sector. As I said earlier, these changes have been brought forward with considerable haste and without a great deal of uh, surprising lack of consultation, if I can put it that way. And so what that leaves us with is a great deal of confusion and uncertainty. And so we've been doing our best to try and put some detail uh, around these new policy settings. And for, for any listeners that would like to know more of the, about that, I would invite them to really review our most recent coverage on uh, for, for Canada on ISAF Monitor. It's, it's almost too detailed to get into in a conversation like this, but we have... Um, with uh, direct input from the immigration ministry in Canada, we have uh, added quite a bit of additional detail to our to our coverage of, of this quickly developing story. There are a number of important things that we are still trying to understand better, but this much is clear. 
um, that the um, federal government is moving aggressively to limit the growth and numbers of international students that are coming to study in Canada. Canada will still welcome a very large number of international students next year. As you say, the total number of students in the country is just over a million right now. So the that number is not going to reduce you know, much below that threshold over the next two years. Certainly there will be some reduction under these new policy settings, but we're not anticipating a, dr a drastic reduction. We are anticipating a, a cap on further growth effectively. That if we step back from that, you know, we think about the top four study destinations in the world, and those are the US, Australia, Canada, and the UK. The pattern over the last number of years, the last few years in particular, is that the UK and Canada have been taking market share, right? They've been gaining market share at the expense of other leading destinations. I would say that because of policy settings that are being introduced in the UK, in Australia, and as we've been discussing in Canada, that is now starting to shift. And I think we'll probably see a pattern play out over the next two or three years where the US and Australia are gaining back market share at the expense of some other leading destinations, including Canada. That's also a very interesting development that we'll keep following. Now, as you mentioned, right, a lot of changes in Canada, and it can become quite confusing. And you mentioned that you had a great article uh, on ISAF Monitor. Actually, we have a direct link to that article right now. It's isafmonitor.com slash Canada. It will lead you to the article that uh, Craig just mentioned, and Craig and his team will keep updating this article with new information as it becomes available. Up next, the main topic of this month, Move Over AI, here comes AGI, the impact of artificial general intelligence on international education. But first, a brief message about ICEF's digital and AI-focused conference, ICEF Digital, scheduled November 2nd in Berlin. We all know that the international education sector is going through an unprecedented digital transformation. And let's face it, it's not always easy to keep track of all of the digital and AI-powered innovations that are available for student recruitment professionals and for the broader international education community. Generative AI, CRM, augmented reality, digital marketing, cloud computing, intelligent SEO, the list is endless. So how to stay on top of the latest innovations, where to start, and what does this all mean for your organization your team, and your students. Join us at ICEF Digital, November 2nd, 2024, where we will provide the answers to these questions and more. Because in the end, it's not about understanding how these technologies work, but it's about understanding how these technologies can work for you. ICEF Digital is a full day of interactive sessions, panel discussions, and presentations on a broad range of digital topics featuring industry experts, keynote speakers, and thought leaders, alongside renowned scientists and professors who will update us on these digital and AI innovations and how they relate to international education. So join us at ICEF Digital, November 2nd at the Intercontinental Berlin, the day right before the industry's main annual gathering, ICEF Berlin, making your Berlin journey all the more effective. Coffee breaks, refreshments, lunch, and an evening reception are all included. For more information and tickets, please visit icef.com forward slash digital. You can visit that same page for information about exhibition or sponsorship options. icef.com forward slash digital. See you there. 
And now for the main topic of this month. Move over AI, here comes AGI. The impact of artificial general intelligence on international education. Whilst most of us are still doing our best to catch up on the often mind-blowing innovations thanks to the miracles of artificial intelligence, the next stage of the AI evolution is, according to some, just around the corner. Artificial General Intelligence, AGI. Where the current AI innovations are designed to follow specific instructions and complete tasks as directed by us humans, AGI is designed to be more proactive and independent. For example, AGI can learn from its experiences and make decisions on its own without the need for human input. Now, obviously, this can and very likely will have a profound impact on many aspects of our lives, personal and professional, and therefore on many aspects of how we do business, in our case, on how we recruit students from marketing to enrollments to anything in between and even beyond. So should we be excited or should we be concerned? or perhaps both, I'm going to ask these questions to our guest speakers today, to real humans, no artificial intelligence involved here. And they are John Moravec, founder and CEO at Education Futures, and Bart Kaler, president and founder of the Higher Ed Marketer. Gentlemen, many thanks for joining us today. Um, to kick us off, do tell us a little bit about yourself and your background before we dive into our main topic of AGI. John, may I start with you? Yeah, so I'm John Warbeck. I'm an education futurist. And as you said, I'm the founder of Education Futures. So in the work that I do, I work with uh, various ministries of education on the world, some multilateral agencies, universities, and uh, other high-level organizations just to work on building innovative and uh, future-ready societies. And technology plays a huge role in this. And especially artificial intelligence is at the center of everybody's conversation. I'm also editor of the academic journal On the Horizon. It's the International Journal of Learning Futures. And my, my academic background is actually in international education and international development education. So it's really nice to bring everything full circle for this conversation. Absolutely. Sounds like the right uh, profile for this podcast. Love that you're a futurist. So we'll, uh, we look forward to hear more about that in a minute. Bart. I'm Bart Kaler. I'm the president and founder of uh, not only the Higher Ed Marketer, but Kaler Solutions. We're a marketing and um, agency that uh, focuses on branding and marketing for, for education. I have a corporate background, and so I took what I learned in corporate and tried to apply it to uh, my passion for education. I'm a first-gen student, and so I've seen the impact that education can have on students. And so um, uh, I have uh, my, you know, early in my career, I, I did my first website in 1994. And this feels like the early 90s again to me, as far as the opportunities that are there, as far as back then it was websites. And everybody was like, you know, I don't know if our school really needs a website. You know, we don't really have that many surfers looking into our school. Well, now, of course, everyone has that. I think that's where we are with, with uh, generative AI, AGI coming up, that this is going to be a part of our lives, whether or not we understand it or want it. And, and I have been trying to learn as much as I can in the same way that I did back in the early 90s. Fascinating. So 1994, the rise of the internet, the information at your fingertips with now the uh, rise of artificial intelligence, meaning of expertise at your fingertips. Yeah, That's all really a really interesting development. Now, I guess there's a bit, a bit of a debate going on on whether artificial general intelligence is already here or whether this is a hypothetical thing that's going to happen in the not so distant future. But maybe let's have a have a look at what we feel artificial general intelligence really is, how it works, what it can do. Bart, how would you describe AGI? 
I think AGI, I mean, there's a lot of different things that people are kind of, there's a lot of definitions out there. So artificial intelligence, just AI is something we've had around since the eighties and nineties. It's, it's having tasks that are done, you know, autonomously or automatically by computers. And that's, that's nothing new now, generative AI, which started, you know, kind of officially in November of 22, when chat GPT three was, was kind of rolled out and had the fastest adoption rate of any technology in the history of man. That is what we kind of know as generative AI. It's what the tools that we're all used to being able to use this last year. A lot of people are getting caught up on that. AI is kind of that next step when the computers become a little bit sentient and they can kind of start to take over and think about things on their own and, and almost act in a human-like way to better serve us and humanity. And so I don't think it's, as, it's, not, the, it's not the Terminator stuff that a lot of people get concerned about. <laughs> But it is somewhere between what we know now as chat GPT and more of an autonomous agent that can go out and achieve tasks on our behalf. Right. An autonomous agent. Uh, how do you look at that, John? You know, the way I look at it, I mean, just uh, Ryan was just said is AGI is just artificial intelligence that can reason. So what we are obsessed with today in generative AI is just incredibly dumb. It doesn't know anything. It's taking data, which are bits and pieces here and there, and processing that, processing that into information. Sometimes it's right, sometimes it's wrong. Sometimes it just simply hallucinates. Now, AGI is able to take these bits and pieces and actually start to generate knowledge from it because it starts reasoning. And that's where I think we're gonna see some real transformation out there. And um, a lot of personalization in the sort of products and responses that we can create through AIs. And this will lead to greater innovations. No, absolutely. So AGI can think more independently. It can solve problems that it's not trained to solve. Um, you think that AGI could even develop some, some sort of conscience, John? Well, in theory, I mean, at some point, maybe we'll, we'll get there, but with the AIs that we have now, generative AI is just an algorithm uh, that, that mimics reality. Now, AGIs will, will start to interpret reality. And so maybe there'll be some thought processes that emerge from that. Yeah. But uh, we'll see, and that will take some time. But there's already some significant developments towards that that uh, that's been appearing in news stories. Yeah, I think it's interesting how you describe that, right? Where current AI mimics reality and then uh, artificial general intelligence uh, interprets reality, Bart. Yeah, I think I think that's pretty accurate. I think that would be a way, and and I think that that's one of the challenges that I'm trying to encourage everyone is that just beginning to create a a, a basic understanding, or maybe what I would even call a literacy for for general, you know, AI just for AI in general. I think that a lot of people have been quick to dismiss, you know, even ChatGPT. I've I've talked with a lot of faculty, a lot of different administrators on campuses. They're like, well, you know what, really, we really want to try to be authentic. We're not gonna we're not gonna buy into that. Well, the genie's kind of already out of the bottle. You can't you can't just choose not to to opt out of this. I mean, this is going to be a part of all of our lives and a part of every tool that we're utilizing. And so I think that the the question is not whether or not you want to participate, but whether whether or not you are doing what it takes to stay up to speed and and have a working knowledge and understanding of what all is going around on around you. I I don't think it's wise to put our head in the sand and just say that we we don't understand it. Therefore, we're not going to try to understand it. Um, I think sometimes in particularly in higher education, there you know uh, change is is slow. 
and uh, there's there's a lot of comfort in the way things have always been. And I would just warn warn anyone who's listening to that is if if you find yourself in that or if your school finds yourself in that position, there's going to be a lot of change coming in the next you know 18 months that. Uh, you need to be able to be prepared for because I think change management is going to be one of the biggest challenges coming up and, and being, you know, having a working knowledge and literacy of, of what's going on in the AI world is going to be critical. Yeah, no, absolutely. We definitely shouldn't put our heads in the in the sand, and uh, which is indeed what we're not de- doing here at ISF. We think it's very important to keep discussing this uh, important topic, actually, across our ISF publications, uh, networking events, and especially, of course, at ISF Digital. We've had lots of articles, sessions, and discussions about the many advantages that artificial intelligence provides uh, to our industry. For example, across the entire student recruitment funnel, we've talked about AI-powered personalized and tailored marketing, uh, AI-powered chatbots, matching tools, testing, and assessments. And the main conclusion was usually about how AI helps us to enhance what we are already doing, that it helps us save time and money and to be more efficient, be more effective. So AI as a, as a support in our daily work, our daily tasks. AGI, however, seems to be going a step or perhaps many steps further where AGI can perform a lot of this work, a lot of these tasks, if not all of them, on our behalf instead of us. I mean, if AGI can think independently, learn independently, is creative, is able to apply a perfect mix of key factors like perception, knowledge, social intelligence, creativity, and independent decision-making, And the impact, uh, Craig, of AGI is likely to be much more significant and even disruptive. I think that's probably true. I mean, but also we can only speculate about it now, really, right? There's We we have to be a little careful about the variety of acronyms that we throw around. Uh, And and I think it's important to step back and think about where we are, you know, in in that sort of long arc of development of AI technologies. You know, the short version of that is we are, we've arrived at a point that has come much more quickly uh, than anyone would have imagined, even, even you know, four or five years ago. Uh, the tools that are available to, to us now are doing remarkable things. And I think that Bart's quite correct that it's, you know, you can't really opt out of, you know, this reality, right? Like AI is a fact of life for us all now, and it's playing a part in the way that we work and interact with each other, uh, some sometimes quite visibly and sometimes quite, you know, not not very obviously so, but increasingly we just see AI baked into like all of the tools that we use day to day. And so, but that family of tools, this generation of AI is commonly referred to as generative AI, right? So you, it, there, you there are tools that you can use to create content or create things, right? And we are seeing an incredible variety of uses of that technology today, right? There's a there's a website I look in on every now and then called there's an AI for that.com. And it's at last, I mean, I have honestly I haven't stopped by for about a month, but last time I did, there were about 8,600, 8,600 AI tools that were freely available that were all very specialized to do different types of tasks that you could just pull off that website and put to work right away. Like that is amazing. And they, and and some of them, I mean, you just frolic around on that website for five minutes and there's an amazing variety of things that you can, you can do there. So that is generative AI. Artificial general intelligence 
as you said earlier, there's some debate about where we are uh, along that trajectory at the moment. Some people believe we're seeing early expressions of artificial general intelligence today, but AG, AGI is describing a type of AI that is, uh, John said earlier, that is autonomous, right? That it can function by itself. It doesn't need human instruction or prompts to do something. It's an intelligent agent that is operating autonomously. I think by objective measure, we're not there now. And, and so we're, we're, we're thinking in, in, in this case about a kind of hypothetical future state, which does not yet exist. It's hard to understand how that would change our world, but it, you don't have to think about it too long before you start to realize that those changes would be monumental. Yeah, it's difficult to understand and comprehend and to look into that future. Now, John, you're a futurist. What's your view on uh, on, on what uh, Craig just said? Oh, man, uh, it, I have to totally agree. I mean, right now, the world is just pure science fiction now. We're, we're living in science fiction. And, uh, you know, for me personally, I, I edit a journal on education futures. But now everything is the future or science fiction for everybody or AI we're seeing explosion of this stuff in, in other areas. But when it comes to education, and this is, I think this is really important, nothing changes slower than schools and universities, right? They are just simply, they're just simply slow to change. They are responsive to change. And the things that create the biggest change are really responses to crises. Uh, like everybody went online when the pandemic hit. We were talking about going online, uh, doing uh, little steps towards going online. We created, we created many products people just weren't really happy with to bring us all online. But the pandemic forced everybody to go online, right? And so that was, that was a driver in policy. And another thing that's kind of interesting related to this, and I think that when we talk about resistance to change or, or resistance towards uh, really preparing for AGI or even adopting current technologies that we have now, there's a there's an old idea of the technological singularity. It's coined by Werner Vinge, I think, around 1993-ish, and it's been it's been debated a lot, and it's been largely dismissed as like the the singularity is always near. But if you look at at it, it through the sense of human capital development, human potential development where within schools, universities, international programs, we are charged with preparing a future workforce for people who are ready to take on these future challenges. And that requires us to really imagine what the future will be. And we're looking at a future that we just can't imagine what it will be, right? We've hit the limit of human imagination. So that's kind of like the technological singularity, but put in very, really human terms. And in some and some fields, like that, the singularity point was hit a long time ago. People are wondering, what should I do now? What's the space for me? And others, it's just around the corner too. So it's hitting us at different different points. But we're really hit, hitting the limits of human imagination as to so what should we do next, or what should I do next? Right. So we almost need AI to help us imagine what the future of AI uh, looks like. Now, I'd like to um, briefly shift to um, the specific area of education, K-12. Uh, Bart, you, you've been writing some great articles about AI, most recently one for K-12 Digest, a portal and magazine titled The Dawning of a New Era, How AGI is Revolutionizing K-12 Education. Based on this article, 
Can you give us some concrete examples of the impact of AGI on K-12 education, some concrete examples of the this dawning of a new era? Yeah, I think what you're going to find, I don't know if there's any concrete examples that exist quite yet, but I think what you're going to find is that as these new tools come on and, and as we've seen, you know, just with generative AI in the last, you know, since November of 22, they have come on very quickly. And I think to Craig's point about the website that you can you know, find 8,600 different tools that you can use. Mm -hmm. I think as more uh, in-depth AGI type of tools come on, you're going to see applications, especially in K-12, where you've got, you know, a large group of students who, you know, there's a classroom of, of 30 children and each of them have different levels of, of uh, you know, of where they are in a certain academic, you know, standards. And I think that what you're going to find is AGI tools are going to be able to assist the teachers to be able to provide additional tutoring or additional uh, challenges for different students at different skill sets. So in a lot of ways, I think that that's where this, these autonomous assistants um, in education are going to come on, whether it's through tutoring or whether it's through one-on-one -on -one engagement to kind of start to measure uh, custom programs for, for these students to be able to get them to the point. I really like John's point earlier about the fact that, you know, we're preparing a, a future workforce. And, you know, I, I interviewed Mark McCrendel from, um, he's the author and, and actually the, the person who's coined the term Generation Alpha. I interviewed him on the podcast a couple of years ago, and, and he you know, was expressing how many additional careers a Generation Alpha will have a, over the course of their lives. I mean, whether you're a boomer or an Xer like I am, I mean, you know, usually we would have two or three different types of careers. Well, these, these children are going to have you know, eight, 10, 12 different careers in their lives, and that's going to be because of the way that AGI is going to impact the world. And it's going to be um, something that we're not going to be able to necessarily teach or keep up with in education. We're going to have to teach the skills of how to engage with these types of things. I mean, the, right now we're talking about prompt engineering as it relates to generative, a, generative AI. And I think that we're going to see that type of skill set having to grow where we are learning how to engage with these systems that we are developing as, a, as opposed to, in addition to, I should say, in addition to the, the basics that we've always done with, you know, the reading, the writing, the arithmetic type of, you know, way of approaching life. And so and there's going to be a lot of changes. I don't, I, I think that again, it goes back to that. How will this enhance the way that we teach and how will it enhance education as opposed to feeling like it will be a threat to it? Right. And will we even be able to keep up with these changes with our uh, education programs, with our uh, skills um, and developments, with uh, lifelong learning, of course, is very important there as well. John, you wrote, recently wrote a piece that I came across on LinkedIn titled Embracing a Tomorrow Beyond Automation, How Artificial General Intelligence is Transforming Our World, Work and Ways of Learning. So a similar question for you. Can you give us some concrete example of AGI? impact on our world of working and learning i think to, uh, yeah to bridge over what, what what bart was just talking about especially as we look in the k-12 world and preparing these these uh future these future workers right now at the moment yeah prompt engineering is really important stem you know science te uh, technology engineering mathematics is really important when we look at how agi can augment the work that humans do, ultimately prompt engineering and STEM-like uh, competencies will become less critical with AGI. They'll be able to take over the, those things because that's, that's all based on uh, mainly uh, explicit knowledge. And I think that when we look at 
from the human perspective on what we need to do as humans is really, you know, build towards these, you know, personal skills of curiosity, uh, achieving the, the human experience. And that could be through artistic creativity and international education. We have cultural and contextual adaptability. We've got emotional intelligence. We've got philosophical reasoning, intuition, and being able to use your intuition to make decisions. So you got bits and pieces of information here and there, but your intuition really helps. We got compassion for helping each other out and understanding each other. And then also, you know, physical skills that, uh, that only humans can do. We can have the best of AGI, but it won't be able to fix your toilet. That's a very good point. Indeed, very often people um, ignore the fact that the way we interact with each other is dependent on so much more than just intelligence, right? You just mentioned a few things, emotional intelligence, uh, compassion, empathy, important characteristics whereby you could probably uh, imagine, uh, Bart, that these innovations, the AI-powered innovations, AGI-powered innovations are indeed here again to support us, to make us more productive, to make us more effective, to make us more efficient. Is that indeed the way you would see it? Yeah. And I, and I, I do agree with that. And I think that, you know, I remember seeing the, you know, the, the futuristic, you know, things in the 1950s where, you know, mm -hmm. once robots come in, you know, the Jetsons idea that, you know, it'll just be a life of leisure. Well, we know that uh, it's not turned out to be a life of leisure. It's actually been more people are working more hours these, uh, these years than, than the leisure that we have. So uh, we are designed as humans to, to engage in work. I mean, that's just part of the, our DNA is that, that we are, are built to do that. And so we will find other work to do, but I think that it will be augmented. It will be, you know, we will have assistance in doing that. Um, you know, I, I like to liken the generative AI to, you know, the Iron Man suit for Tony Stark. He still does the same types of things, but when he climbs into the suit, he has new ways of doing things and, and it gives him the powers that he has as a superhero. And so I, I think that we're going to experience some of that, but I think it gets back to, and, and, and maybe I'd like to make this point is that you know, I, I'm a product of, of the liberal arts, and I think the liberal arts are going to become more and more important as we develop our education, because as we get into these autonomous assistants that can help us with a lot of things that are going to be specialized knowledge, going back to what you had said, Martin, about the empathy, the compassion, those human elements that only we can do, those are often developed through the liberal arts and through you know, the, the different ways of education that has been consistent for, for centuries. And I think that we're going to find a lot of education getting more enhanced by that so that, that we as humans are doing more than only we can do as humans that will actually in, increase a lot of our world and our relationships and our culture. So that that's kind of, you know, a silver lining with all of this is that I think that we will have the ability to focus more times on that type of education. But, um, but I think there is going to be a lot of change to what John has said. I think there's, there's just, it's naturally going to be coming. Yeah, yeah, there's going to be a lot of change. And in between the lines, I hear a very positive view on all this, how all these innovations can indeed help us with our task and support us, uh, Craig. I guess it resonates very much with some of the conclusions of ISAF Digital last year, where the overall the view was that all these innovations were first met with concern and with fear because we don't really understand them. But the more we um, do not put our hands in the sand, as you said earlier, Bart, but actually embrace them and, and, and are open to learning more about them, we learn how to use these to our advantage and to be more competitive as uh, professionals, uh, Craig. 
Well, I think, you know, there's a, there's a pattern of technology introduction and adoption that plays out over history. And it's when a new technology arrives, it's a normal human response to go, what does this mean for me? And in, a, in an economic sense, is this, is this going to interfere with my career or my employment prospects? Is AI coming for my job in this case? And the, the refrain that keeps ringing in my ears around that is that, you know, and I think that Bart was pointing us to this earlier, is that, you know, AI is not going to take your job, but probably somebody using AI tools is going to take your job, right? Like it, you have to acquaint yourself with these tools and become adept in their usage, right? It's uh, if this is how people become more efficient and effective at how they do their work, then your ability to incorporate these tools into what you're doing is an important part of your career and your career development. I guess we could think of it that way. But at the same time, sort of talking about his liberal arts background and like the importance of those, the types of skills that arise from that kind of education. And I, Bart was making that point. For what it's worth, I really hope you're right about that. <laughs> I, I was making that very argument to one of my kids this morning. And uh, who, he's a high school student. And he just finished telling me that many of his peers are using chat GPT to prepare their, their high school essays and whatnot. And he's uh, so far avoiding it. And I was just making the point that, especially in this context of technological change, how important it is to be able to develop and communicate an idea, right? And that those are those types of skills, I think, is the type of thing that Bart's pointing us to as a, as a kind of, you know, essentially human characteristic that will become incredibly, increasingly important in, a, in an environment of rapid technological change increasingly important and we'll have more and more time to focus on those skills as the artificial intelligence solutions help us with all the other stuff right so i guess what's also important to help our audience understand is that they don't need to understand how all these technologies work right they uh, there are lots of companies and innovators uh, worldwide that will use these new innovations to develop the tools that you alluded to earlier, uh, Greg, the 8,600. Surely we'll see an exponential growth there as well of innovations that are on the shelf, ready to use for us as professionals to be more successful in uh, in what we do. I guess it's so about artificial general intelligence, right? It's important to note that there is indeed an entire debate going on between scientists and experts uh, about when or even if there will be a point in time where technological growth may become uncontrollable and irreversible, whether AI will ultimately become autonomous entity. This phenomenon is called, and you mentioned it earlier, John, the technological singularity. And you might want to look that up. It's it's fascinating to read about the, the visions for the future and what this singularity can mean to humanity. Some of the experts are very concerned. Some are very excited. So as a final question, let's uh, ask our guest speakers today. What do you think? Should we be excited or concerned or perhaps both, uh, John? I think we just accept it as a reality. I don't think we need to be worried that AI is coming for our jobs because AI is coming for our jobs. <laughs> so I think as humans, we just need to become more adaptable and we need to learn how to move nomadically between organizations and even within organizations to create new value. AIs will be good, at least in the, in the near to medium term, we can expect them to be good at replicating the present value humans can recreate, but they can do it at scale. But I think the question for all of us then is, so as humans, how can we create new value? And that requires an entirely new set of skills than what most of us have been working with. Right. So quite optimistic, we should be more adaptable. Bart, what would you add to that? I would add the fact that... Um... Technology is technology. It, it's it's a little bit of um, 
I don't know exactly how I'd put that. I would liken it to the fact that when the Iron Age came about and, you know, the technology was to be able to craft items and tools into metal. Some people chose to turn that into a sword and to wield those swords with the effect of, of death. Other people chose to turn those into agricultural implements that, you know, furthered the ability to feed more people. So I think that the technology is, is kind of uh, neutral in a lot of ways. It ends up being in the hands of, of who's creating it and who's using it is where it can go one way or the other. And so I, I agree with John's point. We've got to, you know, we've got to learn to live in a, in a world where this exists. I mean, we've been doing that since the, since the forties and fifties with the atomic energy and atomic bombs and things like that. I think that we're going to have a, you know, the same type of world when it comes to singularity and other things like that. So I'm a tech optimist. I think there's a lot of power in the ability to use these things for good, but I'm also a realist that, you know, there, there are challenges that we're going to have to face uh, together. So. Excellent. Craig, any last words? Only that I scratched my curiosity itch during this conversation by looking up the current tool count on uh, there's an AI for that and it's 11,600 <laughs> so it's so it's growing at an almost exponential rate yeah. month over month it's absolutely amazing to see what's happening and I mean it's it's a silly example in a way but also a telling example of how our sense of how this type of technology can be used how quickly that's expanding And so Absolutely. it's a uh, it's it's a little a little barometer that I'm keeping an eye on at least, and it's kind of fun to watch it watch it grow in the way that it is. I'm sure, and it's going to keep growing. Well, uh, many thanks, John Moravec and Bart Kader, for your very valuable insights on this uh, fascinating topic. And for our audience, please note that we will dive even deeper into this and other AI and digital topics at ISF Digital. November 2nd in Berlin, so do join us there for the latest information and insights on the digital transformation of the international student recruitment industry. Now, John, I believe your last name is from Czech Republic, correct? It is. It is. Well, that's a nice coincidence. The word robot comes from the Czech Republic, but also it's the, the country that we'll be discussing in our Keys to the Market section, which is coming up next. Up next, Keys to the Market where this month we focus on the Czech Republic. The Czech Republic, or Czechia, is a landlocked country in the heart of Europe. It has a rich culture and history and is famous for its stunning castles and its beautiful historical capital city, Prague. It's a relatively small country of 10.5 million, but it is very attractive as a study destination with 15 institutions featured in the QS University rankings. It has very affordable student life and students have the opportunity to work part-time during their studies. At the same time, the country is also attractive as a source market for student recruitment. Greg, what else can you tell us about the country historically known as Bohemia? Yeah, it's well, I think that's a great summary because it's it's one of those markets that is is two things at once. It's it's an important study destination, and in fact, an increasingly important study destination. About there was a report last year indicating that like one in five students in higher education in Czechia are uh, international students. And so, and, and for the reasons that you mentioned, it's a very affordable destination with a high quality higher education system. And so it attracts students from, particularly from other European, uh, other European countries, but uh, elsewhere as well. But it's also been a very stable market for student recruitment, not a massive market. Like there's, you know, 12, 13,000 students a year going abroad for higher education from Chechia. And the, as you might guess, they go mainly to uh, quite a variety of, of, of European destinations, in fact. Some go a little further abroad to the U.S. or elsewhere. But it's an interesting market for recruitment in the sense that 
you know, the education system is quite well developed in the country. The uh, English language uh, learning is quite well established in the country. And so students come out that are well qualified with good English skills. And they're looking for, you know, college and university level programs uh, across a variety of fields and destinations. I could add to that as well is that all the indicators that we see about in, in terms of how uh, Czech students think about study abroad is that they're very motivated by field of study. And so for institutions that are looking at, you know, entering the market or expanding their presence in Czechia, I think the advice would be to lead with your programs, to put those out front in terms of the, you know, distinctive programs that you have or programs that are understood to be uh, in high demand among Czech students. Uh, and also to look, because the education system there is has the strength that it does, to look for opportunities to partner, certainly with uh, agents and recruiters in the country, but also with institutions as well. Absolutely. I think also that uh, Czechia is a great example of um, of the alternative opportunities that exist in terms of study destination beyond, let's say, uh, Germany, France, the UK, in, in Europe with a high quality education system, the likes of you know, uh, Slovakia, Croatia, there's lots of other countries with lots of great institutions with high quality programs and uh, very attractive to, uh, to for students to consider. Now, for anyone uh, interested to connect with study abroad agencies or with education providers from across Czechia, you can find them at various ISAF events. For example, ISAF Berlin, 3, 4, 5 November this year. And for a full overview of all our upcoming events, you can visit isaf.com slash events. So thank you, Craig. And thanks again, John and Bart. And thank you to our audience for spending some of your valuable time with us. For more information about the topics we've discussed in this episode, please visit icefmonitor.com. And don't forget to share your feedback and questions with us directly via podcast at icef.com. This episode was sponsored by ICEF Digital.